Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking cover crops after your early harvest crops like wheat and silage. In our spotlight, we'll look at Precision Planting's new Radical Labs. We'll do a GDU update, a history minute. We'll talk about the history of cover crops. And we'll wrap things up with some cool beans, that's corny, and current events. So with me today are Bill Schomburg. Hey, guys. Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. So, looks like the trade didn't really work out that great. <laughs> At least two games. So, a hater, the hater trade, we had two not-so-great losses. Uh, not that there's a great loss, but the think, new, new guy. I think last night hurt the most. They were up four to nothing. Lost, Early, like yeah, first inning. Lost seven to eight. And our new closer, who was our eighth inning guy, Devin Williams, on the third pitch of the inning, gave up a the, walk-off. The walk-off, homer. Yeah. So I'm calling right now. This is great for him because he's got, you know, he's, he's ass hit, hit the hit, low. Right. Now, yeah. like, yeah. now he can like, only build up. only get better and... When you get that change where you know haters you're the gone guy now. and you're the guy, like, what better way well, than to get, you know? And I, he was. I'm just saying, this isn't playoffs. This isn't. Right. It's. This, it's I think the hard part is it's the Pirates. So it's like they blow. True. But he was due to give. He he went f- like 40 straight innings without giving up a run. Yeah. So. At some point. Everybody gives up runs, so he was due. It just kind of... But it is scary at the beginning because your closer is like... There's something about a closer that they just have, like, that attitude about him. Yeah. Like, who's the Brewers guy that would just run into that sweet, like... uh, Hoffman? Hoffman, yeah. When we had him Oh, he had the Hell's Bells. Yeah. Yeah, that was Hell's Bells. Or it's that guy, the Hell's Bells guy. And then there's the running guy. There's two different guys, I guess. But, you know, they they just got, like, that feeling to him of, like, they're... You know, like to strike fear well, in the other team, and that this like way started. Thing. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Like it's wild three thing. outs, right? It's no different than any other inning. It's no, three outs, but it's the most highly leveraged three outs because it's their last three outs. Like so they the other know, team's going to be right. Push they it, know yeah. this is it. So what I love about that, like though, in the eighth inning, it can't be that much different. Like these teams no. got to know, like the fourth out can't be that much different than yeah the third out. But I would agree there. They are different, you know. It's it's the end of the game, and you hit a home run there, and you win. You know, you, right. you so walk you, off, you're done. Yeah. So yeah, they got four guys for hater, four for one. I yeah. I'm struggling with like sports radio now. It's like, oh, is this a good deal, bad deal? Like national media actually showed like they kept calling it a haul for Josh Hader. Like right. that we got a bunch of good stuff, you know, and. And that was cool. And what the local guys seemed to kind of like, in general, not like it. Yeah, so that must have been different than the article I saw that was like, Brewers front office not committed to World Series win. Or yes, those. Well, are, and it didn't help that that Stearns came out after the trade and basically said, "This is a trade to keep us." Like, he he had a better way to put it, but basically, we we had to do this because if we stay in. Then we gotta pay them, and we're gonna suck. But if we trade them, we can stay g- good for longer, better for longer. Basically, so it's like okay, so we'll be good enough to make the playoffs, but that's it. Like that's kind of what everybody read into it. Don't you think too? The players, the other play. I mean, some of them, I'm sure, were Josh Hader's friends. Maybe some didn't yeah. like him, but that's got to be a big switchy. Like it just seems like. Even in the locker room now, the feel is different that they got to find a way to get that back again. The hater, haters. The haters. That was the big talk yesterday was how many people were surprised, which I kind of am surprised that people were surprised. <laughs> like, this is your, like, your big guy. Eventually, he's like going to go to the coming. Yankees or whatever right. and get big money. So why wouldn't you think he's going to get traded? Maybe they all thought this winter or next year at this time he'd get traded, not... But for the Brewers, you got more leverage to another team to say, hey, you got Hater for this playoffs and next year. Like, we need more, not just you get him for a rental for three months. Next year at this time, now you have him for two playoffs. I don't know. 
what do you think for the guys we got, Bill? You you're more inside baseball than so, Matt. Or I, like I never heard of any of the other guys. Yeah, so me neither. Oh, okay. Um, well, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> the Taylor Rogers, that's the left-handed closer. That was like kind of the swap. If you look at his stats, they're pretty much the same as Hater's. A little bit lower, but pretty much the same. I think Hater has like an it. That yeah. no one else has right, right. now because he's been the best closer for five or best relief pitcher, not just closer, for the last five years. So he's got something nobody else has, kind of like Rogers, right? He has an it just, that nobody yep. else has. Um, they got another right-handed pitcher, Denison Lamette, which apparently was like third in the Cy Young voting a couple years ago. Didn't even know that. No. Uh, but they designated him for AAA, which not sure why. Maybe it's just numbers. They just don't have a room for him. Well, yeah, when you trade one guy for four, there's going to be <laughs> right. a little bit of that going right. on. And then another left-handed pitcher who's who was the number seventh prospect in the Padres, which in the Brewers, he's the eighth prospect. So he moved down one. And then the one thing I don't get is... An outfielder, Ezra Ruiz, who's like apparently super fast and is the base stealing monster, which is crazy in this. He was their twenty eighth prospect. Now is ranked ninth in ours. So apparently, between eighth and twenty eighth in our, there's nobody good. This guy's better than, like, he moved all the way up to number nine in our. So our, wait, I was just joking with the major league reference earlier, but. That sounds like Willie Mays Hayes. Right. <laughs> um, did we get a Pedro Serrano, too? Right. Or what's, You're what's going on? You run like Mays, but you <laughs> hit like shit. Uh, so, so the Ezri Ruiz guy apparently is better than, like, the top. From our number nine prospect to our number 28 prospect, he's better than all of them because he moved all the way up in our, in our system versus their system. Sure. Well. So well, hopefully at least a couple of those guys pan out because there's the upside to a four to one trade is you hopefully at least you, one guy that's going to do something on one of them. Right. Oh, and that's what Stern said in his press conference. Like now we have four bites at the apple is what he said. So like his whole thing is he's not going to hit on all four of these guys. Sure. But one or two of them out of four should be good. Hopefully more of the two than the one, but you never know. So you got, and you got, Three pitchers back for one plus an outfielder. So. I know people are mad we didn't go get like a bat or you know that's where we were kind of struggling. But I I did kind of like that. I feel like let's double down on just being really good at pitching and that's what wins. It, it you is. Know, you know our bats would get cold in the playoffs and we lose. So let's find a way to to just be better pitcher. You know at pitching and. It's hard when you trade your best pitcher away. You do want to get back at least some pretty good pitchers. Yeah, we want a pitcher, not a belly itcher. <laughs> there was, I'm looking it up now. There's a guy from the, I think the Blue Jays. I was hoping they'd, I forget his name, or the Royals. He must be that good that you forgot his name. I know. Already I can't even remember what team he's on. Yes. Whit Merrifield. Whit, that's a cool name. Yeah, I was, he had a weird name, that's why. Couldn't remember it, but they were actually talking about trading for him last year, oh. and then it never happened. But the Royals traded him to the Blue Jays. I was kind of hoping the Brewers would go after him. And they even said, like, Wilson Contreras from the Cubs was kind of talked about being mm-hmm. traded for. He's like a strikeout homer guy. He's not. Sure. Well, that's what you wonder in the background of, like, we could comment all day how good or bad a trade was, but we never see what – Stearns was getting or offered, yeah. you know, like right. all the details of it's the same with I, with with Gutekunst, right? Right. Like, with, oh, when Devonte was gone, right? Like, like, oh, why? You know, you traded Devonte for only that. Well, that was probably the best offer you right. could even get, obviously, yeah. or you wouldn't have traded him. So that part I always struggle with too is like we think haters worth all this haul and money, and all the other teams know he's going to be gone from the Brewers anyway right. in a year and a half. So I think it also shows that relief pitchers aren't worth as much as an everyday player this, like this. Soto. Sure. You know, what What the Nationals got for Soto and Josh Bell was like top five prospects in the Padres organization. 
they're worth more because they play every day than a guy that comes in for one inning three times a week. Yeah. Right. So, and the Brewers, I don't think we're ever realistically in the Soto thing. He's the big prize hitter that was in the market this year. They weren't realistically ever in that because they aren't going to pony up the $50 million a year it's going to cost him when he re-ups. He turned down like $400 million from the Nationals this Yikes. winter. He turned it down. like So that was going to be a Yankees, Dodgers, somebody like that was going to get Soto anyway. I, I would love to turn down $400 million. Yeah. And then just be like, just kidding. No, thank you. Thank you. I can't feed my family on that. <laughs> I, I will take your $400 million and do my best. All right. You guys ready to get into our topic for today? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So today we're talking cover crops after wheat and silage. So we covered a couple weeks ago, wheat harvest was going on. Should be just about wrapped up here. I know there were a few um, straggler fields here and there, but majority that I've seen has come off, so um, it's off or nearly there. Silage, we're looking at a little over a month away, somewhere you know, mid to late September probably we're going to see silage, maybe a few early fields, but I think the majority just based on tassel. The way we've seen is, is kind of hitting toward that middle of September, so um, rather than wait to plan for your cover crop seeds, now's the time to put that stuff to work and think about what, what you want to grow and what you're going to do. So um, after wheat, what can you grow? Pretty much anything. It's the nice thing about wheat being a, coming off in July, early August here. A lot of heat units left. Um, there's really not much in the way of limitations as far as what you could put out there for a cover crop. Matt, can I just start by saying, like, these are my two favorite timings for cover crops. Like, when we talk cover crops. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not that I don't want to talk about cover crops after corn grain. It's just, that's a very different other crop you're growing. Did you want rye it's, or rye? Right. Uh, the, your how choices good is, are little, how I mean, good is the rye going to be? You're really right? just kind of at that point growing. It, it's just a different, I feel like there's, like, almost, like, two categories here. Like, these are truly cover crops. They will cover the soil from now till then. Like that is almost just like a, a spring little bit of crop you'll get, you know, like yep. it'll, in yeah. the fall, you won't really see much. It'll come in the spring after corn grain. And then soybeans kind of hits it that well. It depends on the, when your soybeans come off on the year, on the maturity you use for soybeans. But that one's somewhere in the middle where these two, like after winter wheat and silage, like we have a, just a huge opportunity here to grow something and have GDUs. Right, and get a substantial amount of growth, yeah. Right. So that part of this, I just, like you say, in the pretty much anything, I love that answer because it sort of is true on wheat. It, we overthink these, well, I need this mix, or, oh, like, don't forget this. And it's like, no, just you, you kind of, whatever's cheapest, whatever, however, whatever fits in your goals will be just fine. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's ones I think we kind of like a little bit better, but in, at, by the end of the day, it really, I think you're fighting over something that isn't really the, ma- you know, if, if you're going up another farmer and say, oh, my cover crop mix is better than yours after wheat, I, I don't think you're going to, we don't have the research to prove that right. at all. Like these mixes are just kind of whatever you've seen and works and what, light, what you like. And like I said, it could be just whatever's cheapest at that time. Well, and it provides the most opportunity for, you know, if you want to, if you believe in diversity and you want to push the diversity, like this is the timing where you can do that, and it's pretty, it's all probably going to grow. I mean, as long as you don't overload with one over the other, there's a lot of these things that you can put in after wheat that you you just can't do later, even after silage. You know, we lose just enough GDUs that some some of the uh, warmer season stuff isn't. You're not going to see as much growth. What's, Even with that window, so you're losing 45 days, right? Right, because wheat is coming off now. I wouldn't even silage is planted, like you just said, Matt, middle of September. That's 45 days of the, and these aren't, I wouldn't even call it 45 days. I would call because 
look at the heat units you get yeah. in August and early September versus right. later. And then, like I said, when corn grain comes off in, say, October, November, it, it's almost like a totally different, you know, if you were to graph that season, it's, it's, it's way different after August and then especially early September. It's, so that's the part I struggle with is that's why I think we're talking way apples to oranges because a, a day in, you know, it's the old drying corn thing is a, a day in August is where the week in October, you know, it yep. just, that's kind of how this works too, is the, you're, you're harvesting way more sunlight, way more heat at this time. You're kind of almost wasting it if you don't put something out there, right? Even if you're not going to harvest anything like, oh, let's put oats and just harvest it in October, November. Yeah, and think about it, your wheat especially, that's the longest you're going to leave a field sit from July, end of July, early August, so that we're, we're in the eighth month, it's August, till you plant at the end of April, early May, which is the fifth month. So now we got four months here and another four to five months on the other end. That's 10 months where you're going to leave it bare right. and do it nothing. I, I agree with what you said, Bill, is the, the word wasting is like after wheat, there is a window to, to do a lot of things. And if you don't do cover crop, you're, you're kind of, even if, even if it's the cheapest, whatever you can find spun out there is still something. So right. yeah, I agree. When you look at this, especially compared to the cost of a herbicide pass, Later this fall to kill which, all the weeds that you're going to let grow, which you still may need the herbicide pass, to, right? Depending on your plan for terminating the cover crop, but I would agree it's you're you're but, doing but it the, regardless. You might be doing it this fall and next spring, right? And versus you can find a way just doing it, it next spring, right. right? Well, and I would hope at minimum that you don't just chisel plow it and walk away, like right? Like right. yeah, most guys are going to put manure on their wheat, but I hope at minimum if you don't believe what we're saying, you don't like what we're saying, you don't. Want to try cover crops, at least when you take your weed off, just bail the straw and don't get anything out until you plant next spring. <laughs> don't leave it brown from now until... Yeah, you're just going to lose so much soil. Like it, We typically have wet falls. It's just kind of the way things are. I mean, we get lucky once in a while and don't have that wet of a fall, but all that rain, you just wash out your soil, lose your topsoil, lose nutrients. It's just... I- I think, too, when we talk about, like, trying to have a biology bridge, so you've got, like, something living from now till then. It's a good You good wonder word. how, good like, word, Todd. I like, like this bridge is, like, the Golden Gate of bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge or the, I don't, I don't know what bridge we want to use, but from winter wheat now, so if you don't have anything living on that soil from August till next year and even if you planted late April, that is a long way... Yeah. of a lot of biology and i'm not even looking at the calendar i'm even looking at like how warm it is at certain times where after corn grain i'm not saying so what but that bridge is a lot shorter of a bridge yeah. you know that's a bridge over the you know the black creek or the it's a you know it's it's the small bridge of of bridges so i think that's the other part to look at is what you say what do you got to lose it's like all that biology right there is what you're losing. Right. Biology, nutrients, soil. Even if you just put manure on it, your manure is sitting there. You know, right. You have that cover crop. It's going to work harder for you. Yep. It'll the manure will help take that up, and at least then you you've got a chance of holding more more there. Because that's a long time to leave your manure out in the field with nothing. I mean, we at times question certain years. Fall to spring, potentially losing some. Well, when you're out there for from now until next spring, that could be uh, mineralization that happens and loss that happens. It gives you a lot more opportunity for that potential. So, Todd, the apparently Louisiana has long bridges. Long Louisiana has yes. got the longest. The, the five, four of the top five longest bridges in the United States are in Louisiana. Lake, Lake Pontchartrain. Pontchartrain. Yep. 24 miles. Holy man. And this the, is the 24-mile bridge, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. So I know we, we've kind of talked about this before, but there's some questions you should ask yourself now besides what we've talked about. Like, once you decide if you're going to do a cover crop or not, what's your next crop? So what are we growing the cover crop for? Is it? 
going to support the next crop? Are we just there to prevent erosion? Are we going to do uh, planting green? Like, what you, what's your plan for next year? What are we going into? Are we going to try to put a little extra nitrogen out there by planting legumes? You know, what, what do you see as, as the opportunity there? And a lot of times, you know, if it's going wheat to fall seeded alfalfa, well, okay, that you're not going to probably put a cover crop in. You're probably just going to put your manure in, seed it down, um, do it that way. But, you know, next year, if you're going to go corn after, it's probably worth putting out some legumes and getting a little bit of nitrogen build up there. Try to see if you can get some credit. I mean, we know it works after alfalfa. We know, you know, we've seen... Even in soybeans, you get a little bit of extra and out there sometimes. So, you know, potential for for opportunity there is a little bit of seed cost versus less nitrogen that you have to buy next year. So, what would we say the heaviest hitter is after you know in our lineup after wheat? It's almost always corn, clover. don't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm saying like crop. in our crop your, rotations, your crop, yep. you know, that's pretty normal. You're coming in corn after, and Matt, you did. So where I'm going with this, Matt, you did some of those where you checked the... So the labs have a new test where you can cut off the residue yep, like from the your cover crop, the yep. biomass from your cover crop, see how much nitrogen that's giving you. Were you seeing, like, upwards of 40 units, or was it... Is that 20 you're or doing 10? That in the spring? Spring. Right before. Spring before... Yep, when you've, when you've got a decent stand out there, yeah, you could be 20 to 40 units... Um, you know, we've, we've seen numbers higher, just not necessarily that it's all going to be available during the growing season. Um, so that's kind of the trick there, um, is knowing how much is going to release because certain crops, the bigger you let them get, the longer it takes to really break down rye being the big one there. What what I was, so where I'm also going with this is in these mixes, the main reason why you need a legume too is to to go after any of your sort of small grains or your real heavy carbon crops. Yep. So like a rye. To help offset. Yeah. Right. So you're kind of offsetting that. So even if you maybe not be gaining, and at least you're offsetting any negative that you would have from the accumulate. Because you're going to, you know, any any sort of like a sorghum or a, any grass species in a way, you're going to kind of have that carbon to nitrogen ratio kind of out of balance for your next crop and just get too much carbon, which is an odd problem. Yep. But that's where you could be at. So throwing those legumes in there to sort of balance that part out, I really like. I think that's a good thing to have sort of a balance between those two. Is, so there, is there one, Matt, or Todd, do you like better, like vetch or clover, red clover, white clover? Uh, it depends on if you want it over winter. I mean, vetch and clover, red clover in particular, you, you get the overwintering, so, you know, it's still going to be there um, in the spring. So there's more potential for it to keep producing in that window versus um, certain kind of clovers that don't overwinter. Yeah, you get the fall growth, but then they're already starting to break down by spring, um, which can be a good thing too. You getting a little bit earlier release, but so that's kind of where the mix thing goes in. Maybe have some overwintering, some that doesn't to kind of get that system going. And one thing that I've heard about and I haven't done a lot of looking into, but it always seems interesting to me is, kind of to Todd's biology bridge idea there is growing something like a sorghum that maybe is prepping your soil for your corn. I've had a few people comment that they've seen better looking corn with sorghum in the fall and then corn in the spring. So uh, maybe you're building up the right kind of biology to grow that next crop. And sorghum you're only doing this time, right? We're not doing it later. No, no way. No. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go. That's the odd part about talking cover crops, and I think why people get so into their mixes and into that, is I think we talk way too much about like specific mixes and specific thing, and there should just be, they're very different crops of what you're planting now after wheat than later. Right. So I agree yeah. with you, Bill. Is That's an August planted cover crop, maybe September, but that would be pushing it. And Yeah, yeah that, you, that you is, need the heat units to get right. that going. It's not... It's, it's not going to respond when it gets cold, and you're just going to waste your money putting seed that might not germinate out there. It's almost not about the mix, more about the species and timing, right? Like right. In August here, pick your mix. Do whatever you want to do. 
but when we get to after silage, that mix changes, those species change. Then when we get to to grain corn, like you said, Matt, it just goes to rye. Like, it's well, not about well, what percentage or what mix you do. It's about what right. species and what time you're doing. It's it. it's knowing when it's going to germinate, what what kind of temperatures you need, and and there's a lot of species out there that are available that aren't going to do much. I feel like we're still in such a learning stage of... So what Matt was getting at before about the sorghum thing is basically what we're finding is it builds mycorrhizal fungi really well. And so with that, it can kind of help your corn. Yep. Well, we're still learning that. Like, we we really don't know why. I mean, we're learning the why, I guess. So that's part of the trick here, too, is if anybody comes in and says they're... You know, they could have quite a knowledge, but to say they're an expert on this yet, I mean, we're just learning the different species and what goes well after that and when to put it in and, and all that stuff. So, like Matt said, I, I think that was a shock to me of how well corn did work after sorghum because I would have expect like, that's where you make a hypothesis in seventh grade science and you say, my hypothesis actually would have been corn after sorghum because it's grass on grass is going to yield less. Right. It's when you, when you think about crop rotation, like I, you don't want to do the same no. so, crop over and so over again. So then I think but, that yeah. was somewhat of a shock to go like, oh, this seemed to work well. So I I really think that part of this scenario, we're, we're still learning the, the specific ones that when and why and which ones work better. That the, to say, you know, do this one or not that one. And I, I think even going back to the legume thing, that's basic, you know, any grass works better after a legume. Right. So that's kind of just sort of the conventional old school science that way. No, you're absolutely right. We don't, we don't know exactly what's right. We can only kind of put out a, a guess based on past knowledge we have. And, you know, some of these we might find later that there's other species at work too that will do the same thing that you could grow later in the season or... Um, put it in a different environment, but yeah, sorghum's really just a warm season thing. That right after wheat, good time for it. Um, are you applying manure, and can you do it over the crop, the cover crop? So that order, can you flip it up? Um, do the do the manure on top of the cover crop, or you do surface, or you do injection? Um, how are you applying the manure? How much are you putting out there? Because we know crops like to take up the nutrients. And that's one benefit of the cover crop is it's going to hold those nutrients in the field for you. You know, whether it's one that's going to overwinter or not, you're, you're potentially helping yourself hold more of that manure there by having the cover crop. So how's that going to work? How are you going to do it? Um, same thing goes for termination. Like, how am I terminating? Am I going to let winter to terminate? Like, the cold weather is just going to kill it. Do I want to spray it off in the spring? Um, do I want a little of both, like have some of it die over winter so I don't have as much biomass to deal with in the spring? So, you know, how does that play into your thought process? Are you going to wait for before planting, after planting? Um, you know, when is your timing? Because that's going to affect what chemicals you can use. So, you know, we've said this before, but you really need to plan it out and have an idea you know, plan A, plan B, to know what you're going to do once spring gets here. Um, rates, the earlier you go, the less rate you usually can use, so you can save some money on your seed cost after wheat because you don't have to put as much out there. It's got longer to grow, so you're going to get more biomass. means it's going to fill in nicer. It's not like you have to go 100 pounds of something, you know, you, you can get away with 20, 30 uh, pounds, depending on what species you're using. So Rates is one where I, when we were use recover crop, we got the word crop in there. Yep. And there's very specific goals we have for, you know, 34,000 plants of corn, and we need at least 20 alfalfa plants in a square foot. And basically what what I'm saying with these cover crops rates is sometimes... You could, you don't need much goes a right. long way. If you could even just get, say, one plant within a square foot, I would say most of the time you're doing a lot better than, say, none or it, it's okay. Yep. 
So that's the other part is like all of farms look at it from the road and it looks good. And then you go in and look down at it and it looks kind of thin. That might be kind of our goal, actually. I mean, I, you don't want it too thin necessarily, but it doesn't have to look like thick, lush, huge crop. Sometimes being thin early and then, like Matt said, it'll a lot of these crops, and look at beans, we're learning that we can plant them, soybeans that... Thinner, yep. A lot thinner, which even in this case, soybeans might be a good, you know, if yeah. you got some left over and put them in thin, they'll do something and they'll do okay. Um, so, so yeah, I, I really think that rate part, and maybe one of the parts this started was with NRCS and their funding for cover crops is they're very high in their planting rates because they're paying you to do this, and yep. so they got this established thing and i mean you could honestly take most of their rates and cut them by about a quarter i don't know what you've seen matt or bill of what that number truly is but for sure half and you'd be all right so well and look at like just flat rye what we're seeing for planting green we only need 20 30 pounds right yes yeah right so so the other and the other part is then when you talk mixes is so you've got four things in your mix what is that each rate then can really change, you know, you can start to really cut those back and be okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that's so, yeah, the later in the season you get, the more seed you might need out there just to get coverage. But early on, yeah, you can go lower, which then plays into your budget of, okay, how much am I going to spend on this? It saves you money. The earlier you can get it in. Cause again, that seeding rates lower. I mean, you could do something for, 10, 12 bucks an acre that's got a bunch of species and will get you good coverage compared to, you know, later on when you have to go higher rates or you're limited in species, it might cost you more down the pipeline, more like 20, 30 bucks an acre. So it, it all depends. Again, goals, budgets, all things to have in mind. Are you going to try to harvest it now or in the spring? Um, you know, that affects your, your seeding rate too. Some guys will, after wheat, you can put something in that you can harvest this fall yet. So if you need extra feed, you know, we, we talk about double crop. That's something other states do a lot more than we do, um, especially for a cash crop. But if you're grazing or feeding animals and you need that extra feed window, that's a great place to put it because you're using the straw for bedding probably or maybe even in part of your feed ration. Now you can go out there in that same field, put out the manure if you need to, and grow something to feed your cows and your landowner your person you rent your land from won't charge you another land rent right <laughs> right amortize that land rent a little less a little more so really yeah it's a way to do more with your acres you're right bill it's it's an opportunity and does opportunity have cost yeah but you can manage that cost so um so yeah wheat great opportunity almost no limit to what you can put out there but now a month and month and a half from now when we get to silage um starting to narrow down that selection a little more you know your small grains clovers brassica is probably still all right but um you know if you're looking to really do a lot of diversity with some different warm seasons grasses or other plants it's you're starting to hit that wall of not going to get a lot of growth maybe not even germinate depending how late your silage goes um, plus, silage, we're still, it's another manure window, so timing that out. Are you going to put your manure first? You're going to establish the cover crop, then do manure. That's going to affect your species selection. Um, you know, rye is the great uh, starter cover crop because it germinates at a fairly low temperature. So, you know, especially after silage, there's no problems, even after soybeans and Sometimes after corn grain, you can get it established in the fall, depending on the fall. Um, you know, so that, that one carries through. You know, that's kind of a standby that you can use. But there's other things that will germinate early in the season. Um, you know, some years we get really nice Septembers where it feels like an extension of summer. And, you know, you can get away with certain species um, that you wouldn't normally get to have in other years. It gets never gets above fifty, and then you're <laughs> you might be. It's it was very interesting last fall for me because the field across the road from my house, the farmer chopped the corn late. They had alfalfa, then they took first crop, planted the silage late, 
and they it was almost it was in October before they took the silage off and they kind of putzed around for a while and didn't do much and they put manure on and just sat there till like I think they planted like November 5th their rye and it I think there was like one day right before it froze tight for the year where you could start to see like that green little fuzz on the surface of the ground and I'm like ooh how's this gonna go you know like did they just do it for a cover? Are they looking for feed next year? What are they doing? And about the same time they planted that, I had another grower looking to plant wheat. And I was like, eh, maybe, you know. So I had advised against it because, you know, wheat's not as hardy as rye. Um, I mean, the cool part for the farm across the road from my house is the rye came up great this spring. They harvested it. It was a really good crop. Um, they planted their corn late again. They screwed around not getting the rye off as quick as maybe they should have but anyhow that's not the point the point is you were talking about rye and after watching that last year yeah i think you can pretty much plant rye whenever you want and it's the whole adage of just get it germinated yeah i think is yeah they didn't have any cover last fall and the spring rains there was some washouts but there was something there yeah and so a silage it's again another great opportunity to get something out there, get a little more growth where you can cover it in the fall. Um, even on the early side of silage, you still might be able to put something in that you could harvest this fall um, for something, or like Bill said, get it established so that you can harvest it next spring. Um, so that feed opportunity is still there um, with this window. So it's it's another thing and another tool in that toolbox of yeah i can still get coverage i can still get manure out you know it it doesn't have to impede what you want to do with the field but again all those same questions kind of apply how are you doing the manure when you're going to terminate how are you going to terminate is it going to overwinter what's your rates like we said later you go the higher the rate you want to go just because you're probably not going to get as much growth um, you got to look at the weather, too. I mean, obviously, depending on how the outlook is on the weather, that can affect some of those species and how well they're going to grow. Um, but, you know, August into September, you're, you're still not probably having to go a real heavy rate to still get some benefit there. You can still maybe get that 30, 35, 40 pounds of, of rye out there and have something to harvest in the spring you know, it's not not like you have to put 100 pounds out there. So, again, still an opportunity to meet your budget, get a cover if you want a cover, and opportunity is there to do something um, positive for the farm, for the soil, keep things from eroding. This, we know the snow that we get is going to have to thaw at some point, and upside is having an overwintering cover crop too. One thing we didn't talk about yet those plants take up moisture so it can help dry out your field a little bit. Maybe get you out a little quicker than the field that's worked up and has the nice little ponds in each of the furrows between where you worked it. And um, So that's another potential benefit there. Anything else you guys want to add? Otherwise, I think we got her. I, yeah, did you use the word budget, Matt, and I do think to find, like, I was with a farm this week, and um, they showed me, you know, all the cover crops they ordered, and then I saw, because it was an invoice, I saw the number of what they paid, and you you know, we know what these things cost, but at the same time, it was slightly of a shock of like, you know, holy man, that's a lot. They're doing a good job investing into the future that they may not even see the true benefit of it. So that part is, make sure you set a budget on this and know what you're comfortable spending. and and just stick with that. It's it's no it's no different really than any other. Inv- I mean, we use the word soil bank all the time, and this is like an investment into that. That's a very long term. There's some short term benefits too, but but in general, it's a long term kind of benefit game you're playing. That you got to be comfortable. And in general, my attitude is always the cheapest, the better kind of in this game, just because you don't you don't see that return as easily. 
so so make sure you're comfortable with that of like okay i know what this seed especially this year where every cost is up and all these seed costs and these pro i mean even just a simple one like rye is way up so and oats um knowing what you got there is a good one is you don't necessarily got to not do it anymore because it's too expensive. Just cut way back and do what you can. No, and look at it too. Like like Bill said, rather than working that wheat field and leaving it worked from now until next spring, you know, take the money you would have paid to do that tillage and use that as your budget for your seed. Put the seed out there. Now you've, you know, you're not out any more than you would have if you would have took the chisel out there, but at least... You're not going to erode. You're not going to have the soil loss. Weed control. Weed control is going to be better. Right. Find yeah. a, and that's true, Matt. Find a other spot in your budget, too, that you could move some expenses to pay for some of this stuff is a good idea, yeah. too. Yeah. Well, and you talk, just one last thing, Todd, you talk about the soil bank. Like, if you don't start investing at some point, you're never going to grow that bank, right? right? Like, your retirement, if you wait till you're 40 to start investing in your retirement, you're not going to have as much there as if you started when you... Got your first job at 18, whatever it is. Same with this. Like, yep, you may not see this in your soil bank by the time you're done farming, but maybe the next generation or the generation after that will see this big, huge soil bank that you've created. Yeah, because even if you don't harvest it, you're still producing some organic matter there, especially those crops that die and, and break down. Like, that's an investment in the soil bank that is hard to make. So... All right, so there's some ideas for uh, things to think about when you're going to put cover crops after your wheat and silage. Now we'll move into our spotlight for today. All right, so today we're talking about a new product being announced this week, Radical Agronomics. From precision planting seeks to automate soil testing. So rather than take your soil to a lab, you can have the lab come to you. The idea behind precision plan, planting's new radical agronomic system, uh, they want you to spend more time in the field, less time preparing to go to the field. So the system consists of a GeoPress, which packs the samples for you on the four-wheeler, the Radical Lab, which then processes the samples, and then they have a software system, the Radical Agronomic Software, that will give you all your results, help you um, see where you've sampled. So it's kind of an all-in-one system where each part kind of helps the other and cloud-based, so you can go anywhere and process all this kind of stuff. So, do you guys feel a fuzz responsible for this? <laughs> what do you What do you mean, Bill? Precision reached out to a handful of crop consultants in the last couple of years, and we were one of them. So we fuzz knew about this. You know, was it last fall? No, last spring. No, spring and fall. Ago. They did a spring trip and a fall trip. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Last spring and last fall, they came out to our facility and we kind of talked about it saw it went out in the field grabbed, grabbed some samples and a lot of conversation about how we sample and how they wanted to make this go so it's kind of neat to see it come to a final product and matt you got to be out there when they were announcing it like yep so i went to their field day they had um kind of announced the whole whole process and it is i mean it took them, I think they said six years, really, to, to go through this whole process. And what they've come up with, it, it is impressive to see. I mean, they they basically built a lab from scratch. You know, they, these guys are engineers that work with, um, you know, planting equipment, not laboratory equipment. They built a chem lab at their facility, hired chemists, hired a soil scientist. I mean, they're, um, they did their, their homework on it, and they, they came up with a a really neat and innovative kind of thing. So it'll be interesting to see how how it gets out into the market, how it gets adopted, and, and what kind of acceptance they get from uh, agriculture in general. I mean, it, it it's cool that they can do it, but there's still a lot of legwork to be done on the other end of, um, you know, like here in Wisconsin, we have certified labs that you have to process through. 
um, that they'd have to go through that process to get certified. Um, their extraction's a little different than we use for phosphorus, so that's kind of a, a contention here in, in our state. But, um, yeah, it's it's something that it's new technology is always kind of neat, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and what they can all it, do with it, it. It's always fun, yeah, when that first new technology comes out and exciting and kind of like, what is this going to change? And I would agree with this technology. It's odd in that it could change very little. You know, we could see that, nope, there's a reason why we've got soil labs the way we do, and it's kind of an established thing. And, you know, they, the reason you have a lab is so it's a, you know, clean, set up different kind of area to do it. And so as we get more of these kind of type of things where it's done more in the field, it'll just be interesting of, of how it's automatic like how much automatic it is and how it works and just that kind of stuff to see it actually kind of work out in the field and on a large scale, you know, will be quite interesting to see that. So Yeah, you think of the lab tours we've taken and oh, they, how big of a facility it is. This is the size of a large vending machine. Yes. So, I mean, they've shrunk it down to... Um, yeah, to a, to a, to a big degree. I mean, it's right. just, yeah. It is very impressive how they've done that, and um, it was very neat to see, you know, the final product we saw, like Bill mentioned, in the test phase, different stages of this, um, just so to see what they came out with, it was um, kind of interesting, and yeah, I look forward to seeing what happens with it, so it's not always, not every day you get to see a product go through that whole uh, right. development cycle. Even to see how much <laughs> is put into, you know, thinking through certain stuff. And, and at the end of the day, once you release something, I'm sure it changed drastically from what you thought. And there's going to be, you know, hurdles for this to overcome that they haven't thought about yet and, and what they do with that. So, um, yeah, the, the, like you say, it's really cool to see it, and now it'll be fun to just see as it gets legs of its own. Does it does the idea work or not? And yep. we've seen that with other ideas that that yeah, in the field, it's like okay, that's neat, but it didn't solve a problem. So yep. yeah, absolutely. All right, now we'll move into our egg history minute. I love that banjo. All right, since we're talking cover crops, thought it'd be interesting to look back at some of the history. So the use of cover crops, uh, or, or the crops we commonly refer to as cover crops, can be traced back um, over a millennia. Uh, ancient civilizations depended on their use to enhance their crops when they cultivated for food. Native Americans utilized a concept called the Three Sisters, where they grew corn, beans, and squash together um, to show... Benefit of diversity, the strategy established a foundation in the effectiveness of synergy of different species that is prevalent in cover cropping today. Cover crops were used nearly 200 years before World War II in North America. In fact, you could argue the first U.S. president, George Washington, who was a farmer by trade, was one of the foremost promoters for cover crops. His crop rotations were strategically listed to include crops grown to eat and sell and crops grown to replenish the soil. So clover, grass, and buckwheat were listed as those that he incorporated into his cover crop systems. And today, um, we've seen them used on a number of acres in a number of different ways. So uh, even though it's been around a long time, we're still learning new things and uh, learning how to put them into practice today. So, Great. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to all our listeners. If you want to learn more about cover crops and putting them into practice please subscribe to our podcast and tell a farmer friend so if your farmer friend harvested wheat this year you can say hey you should go listen to their podcast you can learn all about new kind of cover crop technology and where we're going all you need to do is search tilth talk radio in your apple Podcasts on your iphone or on your android phone we like the apps podcast addict podbean and player fm you can also listen on your computer or smartphone browser, you go to tilthag.com slash podcasts. We're now available on Amazon Music, so you can listen to us on your Alexa or smart speaker. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Tilth Talk Radio. 
All right. Thanks, Todd. Now we'll wrap things up with some cool beans. That's corny and current events. So cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. All right. Our cool beans and that's corny kind of tie into each other a little bit today. So cool beans is the Purdue CME Ag Economy Barometer has shown slight improvement through July. So farmer sentiment has rose or risen slightly um, despite rising costs and lower crop prices. Uh, sentiment is... Or sentiment, yeah, sediment, not sediment, sediment. not sediment. Sediment. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's still weaker than it was this time last year, but it's getting better. So that's a positive. Guys are at least a little bit more, you know, potentially positive about harvest. But then our that's corny is farmers are worried about dryness poised to worsen this week. So seeing the heat back up a little bit. Uh, might dry some things out. We haven't seen a lot of rain in in many areas. Um, some have been getting more than others. And you know, we had some yesterday, but I don't think it really amounted to a whole lot. My grass still looks pretty much the same. I might actually cut it now because I haven't for a little while. Just the way things have been looking. But uh, drought conditions are likely to develop, especially in areas of Iowa, um, the southern half there, with a string of abnormally hot days according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. So we're kind of in that pivotal time with crops where if they're, as they're pollinating or finished pollinating, going into grain fill, you know, we want a little bit of moisture there. We don't want the plants to start stressing now. Uh, we've come so far. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword there. Outlook's starting to look up, but there's still concerns out there. So, All right. That'll do it for this week. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us, Matt. <laughs> this week we talked about cover crops after wheat and silage and some things to think about as you're going about those thought processes. Spotlight was ra- Radical Lab and Radical Agronomics from Precision Planting for automating soil testing. Ag History Minute, we covered talked about cover crops and how long they've been around. And our cool beans this week was Ag Economy Barometer showing slight improvement. That's corny, though, is there still concerns with dryness in certain areas as the cropping season continues. So thanks for listening, and as always, happy farming. <laughs>